If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 19. We are continuing our series, walking through the book of Acts, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And, uh, and thus far, we have made it through Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And so today we continue that series, and we will continue that same text uh, through verse 41. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to take one. If you're new to church or it's been a while, this is the part of our regular weekly gathering when we uh, focus our attention on one particular passage of Scripture and describe and teach through that passage and then describe how it relates to the greater message of the Scriptures and how it can apply to our life today. And this is a regular part of our weekly gathering. It's probably one of the featured parts is that we... We open God's Word, and we, we understand that through God's Word, He spoke all of creation into existence. And so if God speaks to us through His Word, and, and we center our gathering uh, through the Word on Jesus Christ, uh, then we experience this opportunity to hear from God. And so that's our, our conviction. So every week, uh, it's, our, it's our routine that we just regularly hear and teach and preach from the Word of God. Uh, and I encourage you that if you hear something in the message that um, you have questions about or concerns or or maybe in some way you don't think that um, that what is being taught aligns with Scripture, uh, you have the right and the ability to, to come and talk to me about that. Not during the service necessarily. I don't take hands raised or anything like that or questions during the message. But, but it's our opportunity to um, be like those Bereans in Acts chapter 16 who who heard from Paul and who regularly checked what Paul said against the Scriptures to make sure that it lined up. And, and that's your role and duty as well, is to make sure that what is being spoken from the pulpit is biblical and is consistent with the message of the Bible. So we want you to do that. Uh, this morning, it's Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 41. And just as we begin that, I want to help you see the main idea that's included in this section. Uh, I, I learned so much from author Tony Morita. He wrote a commentary in the expository commentary series on the book of Acts. And Tony Morita says this is the main idea. He says that in Paul's extended word-driven ministry in Ephesus, many of the Ephesians turned from idols to Jesus. And Luke records some of these significant events surrounding this spiritual awakening. This is a spiritual awakening in, in Acts chapter 19, what we're going to read here. And many of the Ephesians do. They turn to Jesus from idols. And we're going to read the Holy Spirit's account of that. So I want you to listen cl- closely for those who are turning to Jesus and elements of spiritual awakening as we read the text together. I don't always do this. Sometimes I do. But uh, in Nehemiah and in Ezra, they stood in honor of the reading of the Word of God. And, and so I'd like for us to stand as we read this extended passage of Scripture today in honor of God's Word. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation... He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, 
so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. 
Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Father, we pray and thank you for your word, and we pray that you would take it and use it for your glory today, that you might speak to us by your word, and that you would bring conviction and instruction upon us, and that we may apply it diligently. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and that you might use this message for your glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. I have a, an interesting relationship with uh, college and seminary. I started college uh, in 92 and left in 96 without a degree. It took me another 10 or 12 years to chip away and get through that. Um, I can pinpoint the moment that I failed school the second time. Uh, I decided to go to an Oklahoma, Oklahoma State football game on a Saturday night. Instead of finishing uh, studying for a final, I failed that final, and it took another five years for me to graduate. This is, this is who I am, all right? I'm not a diligent student, and I'm often, uh, I see a hook in the water, and I, you know, I can often be tempted and led astray. My seminary degree is no different. I've been chipping away at it since uh, 2005. I went for three years, 05, 06, 07, and then left with about 90 hours, uh, needing about 20 more or so to finish my master's degree. Uh, But even if I never graduate, I can tell you that I've been incredibly enriched and blessed by my classes. I love my professors, love my coursework, and I studied, um, uh, I'm getting a master's of divinity in evangelism and church planting, and, and it has been one of the greatest joys of my life to sit under great teaching. One of my favorite classes in all that was taught by Dr. Tim Bucher, and that class was Principles of Spiritual Awakenings. We studied every major revival and awakening in the Bible. And then we looked into church history, and we looked at every example of spiritual awakenings, all throughout the world. And it was an incredibly enriching class, one in which I I go back to often and look at my notes. And um, it was one of the encouraging things that has fueled my life in ministry is on the side, uh, seeing how God is at work around the world through these awakening kind of things. If you're not sure what an awakening is, um, Jesus said to Nicodemus, the spirit blows where he pleases. You don't know where he came from and you don't know where he's going. But there is a time and a place in which the Holy Spirit is working in a concentrated way. If the Spirit blows where He pleases like the wind, there are places that are like hurricane force winds where God transforms an entire community, region, or nation in one of these outpourings of the Holy Spirit. We've had three here in our country. In 1720 is the start of the First Great Awakening. You might remember names like Jonathan Edwards, In the 1800s, we had our second Great Awakening. Uh, And then the uh, third Great Awakening was the 1858 Layman's Prayer Revival, or what I call in others the Third Great Awakening. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the Third Great Awakening, this prayer revival. I want to highlight a few features because I can see some of this bleeding over into what we see in Acts chapter 19. The preconditions. Before 1858, the church was in an incredible decline. The culture was incredibly opposed to the church. I believe that um, many campuses 
on the East Coast universities, there were very few believers at all. And um, in addition to that, there was political issues. Slavery was the hot topic of the day. And pulpits like this were used not to preach necessarily the gospel or the word of God, but to promote or oppose political issues. There was a religious factor. There was a man named William Miller who um, persuaded many uh, that Jesus would return in the 1830s. And when he didn't, he made another prediction that Jesus would return in the 18, in 1844. And when nothing happened, all these people lost confidence and churches became the object of scorn. There were uh, also prosperity issues. The gold rush was going on in California. Railroads were being built. A great economic boom took place. And all of these sort of factors together, a hate for God, a hate for religion, the, the shrinking of churches, it left a climate in very many ways like ours is today. Jeremiah Lamphere was a Dutch Reformed layperson. And in New York City, uh, he was hired because they couldn't find a pastor, just a regular craftsman And they hired him to do pastoral work in their church. And he set out to visit every single church member in the congregation, and that left him really discouraged. So discouraged that he felt like all he could do was pray. And so he started to pray. And then he posted a sign on Fulton Street on a a pole uh, advertising a noontime prayer meeting. And no one showed up. And so he did it again, and and about 30 minutes into the prayer meeting, six people showed up. Um, Within a few weeks, more and more people came, and then monthly, more and more people came, to the result, uh, to the end that by the end of a year, there were over a million people gathering every single day, all across the nation, for noontime prayer. It became an incredible move of God through the simple act of believers gathering together and unbelievers gathering together. There was a spiritual hunger that God met through this layperson in these prayer meetings. There were between 300,000 and a million converts, as best as can be tracked from that first prayer meeting all throughout North America into Canada as well. There were over 20,000 new churches started around the country as a result of this move of God. There was a moral and social change, an uplift. Bars were closed, debts were repaid, the crime rate dropped. There was an incredible decline of vice, meaning addictive things. The laity rediscovered their role and usefulness in ministry, and it produced many workers in ministry that you've no doubt heard of. William Booth, uh, the the founder of the Salvation Army. D.L. Moody was also touched and used during this time. And many new schools came up as a result of this. In contrast, I met a friend who started a church in Oklahoma City, and it had a different sort of viewpoint. It was more excitement and enthusiasm and loud, amazing band and amazing music and a great speaker and everything was sort of catered to a crowd 
sort of environment. And when I asked him how the new church plant was going, in this town of maybe 20,000 people, he said, we baptized over 2,500 new believers. And I said, that's incredible. You should begin to see the results of that in your community for years to come. And years later, 10 years later, when I asked him how it was going, he described no change in his church or no change in his community. See, the effects of a great awakening, the effects of a revival, the effects of a great move of God, of genuine conversions, leaves its mark on the people and leaves lasting change and effect upon the community. An awakening or a revival can be defined as an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. An extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. That's from Richard Owen Roberts in his book, Revival. And we see that here in Ephesus. When Paul is preaching the gospel, we see the Holy Spirit moving in such a way that extraordinary things are taking place. It is a lasting move of God. Tony Morita says that what happened in Ephesus is better called a great awakening. This chapter has all the signs of a great awakening. J.I. Packer writes in an essay on Jonathan Edwards and the First Great Awakening, he notes that there are the following ten elements associated with most awakenings. There is a sense in which God comes down in a, a more potent sense that people experience the nearness of God. Two, God's Word pierces men and women's hearts. Three, the sin of man is revealed and men and women begin to confess and repent of sin. Four, the cross of Jesus Christ is valued. Six, uh, change goes deep. And J.I. Packer in his illustration actually uses Acts chapter 19 as an example of the change that goes deep. Uh, Excuse me, six is love breaks out. Seven is joy fills the hearts. Um, Eight is that every church itself becomes a place where God is present in the sense that He is felt to be there, present to bless in the midst of those who are His, that every time people gather with God's people, there's a real sense of God's presence. Nine, the lost are found. And number ten, Satan often keeps pace by attacking and with countermeasures and with counterfeits. These characteristics of awakenings we can see here in the text in in Acts chapter 19. What God did in Ephesus is nothing short of an extraordinary move of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see these five features of this awakening in the text that we're looking at today. Number one, the word increased and prevailed. The word increased and prevailed. Look at the text. In Acts chapter 19, verses 8 through 10, it says, When Paul entered the synagogue for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, verses 11 through 19 Uh, describe what took place in that time. But look at verse 20. So, the word of the Lord continued to to increase and prevail mightily. So the verses 11 through 19 are bracketed 
in the beginning by this idea that all the residents of the of Asia heard the word of the Lord and in verse 20 the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily the word increased and prevailed that's the idea that in the midst of this Paul was committed to preaching the word of God he was committed to preaching the gospel to public proclamation we learned that he started in the synagogue and he did that for about three months. He's not in the synagogue very long, folks, when he goes from town to town. It's usually a week or two and then he gets kicked out or some opposition comes up. But for him to be there for three months. And then when it says they became stubborn, it's an interesting word, the stubborn word. It's only used about six times in the New Testament, four times in Hebrews, and it's often translated as their hearts were hardened. There was a, an obstinance that came out as they regularly heard the word of God, that they resisted due to stubborn, hard hearts. Now, it would be wonderful to say that that's the way it was back then, and that's for those who are out here, but, but even in a church, in a room like this, many people are often stubborn to the word of God. They have zero interest in putting it into practice. They have no real fuel or desire to read or to study or to be engaged in the Word of God on a regular basis. But this was one of the features of this extraordinary move of God is that there was this incredible hunger for the Word of God, an incredible hunger for the gospel message. And it's proven by the fact that Paul was able to proclaim it for three months in the synagogue. And then when that didn't work out, he moved to the hall of Tyrannus. And it says that he preached daily for two years. And the Western text, an alternative translation uh, that adds this one phrase that he did so from the hours of 11 to 4 p.m. And this is uh, typical of a city like Ephesus. A philosopher or a teacher would have his own classroom or rented room and he would teach in the cooler hours of the morning in this Mediterranean region and then in the afternoon it would just be open where many businesses closed I think we should go with the European siesta model personally right who wouldn't like to have from one to four off just a nap and hang out that's what they did here as well in the hotter parts of the day and it said that in the hottest parts of the day Paul would rent out or use this hall of Tyrannus and so for this five hour block of time or at least for a good part of the day, Paul would just teach the Bible. He would just focus on and teach the Word of God in this normal part of their nap time or this normal time when people are off. He taught the Bible daily and the gospel message for five hours a day. Can you imagine coming here and hearing the Word of God for five hours every single day? If you'd like to start tomorrow, right, we can all gather back together. I don't have a problem with five-hour messages, right? Um, it's okay with me to, to teach and talk through the Word of God for long, extended periods of time. But this is what Paul did. And you don't do that if there's not a hunger. Paul's not talking to himself, right? In this place, there's an overflow crowd. And you can tell that because the text says that all the residents of Asia heard the Word of the Lord. Years later, after Paul's missionary journeys were over, he, he's traveled around and he wants to pop back in to Ephesus, but he can't make it all the way over, so he stops in Malta and he calls the Ephesian elders over to him. Look at Acts chapter 20. Just flip over a chapter. <clears throat> Starting in, in verse 18, listen to the prominence of the Word of God when Paul um, flashes back and he reminds the Ephesian elders of his pattern when he was there. 
Acts 20, verse 18 says, When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to be through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the scene there? Paul is proclaiming the gospel daily, loudly, publicly, but he's also going house to house, proclaiming the gospel and teaching people. Look at uh, at verse um, 26 in that same chapter. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you Not just the gospel, but the whole counsel of God. Look down at verse 31. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night and day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You can see in that flashback, Years later, Paul reminding the Ephesian elders of his pattern, and it truly highlights the fact that the prominence of the Word of God in Paul's Ephesian ministry took center stage. He proclaimed the gospel, and he taught the Word of God. Listen, you and I need not just the regular week-in and week-out teaching of God's Word. You and I need to live by the Word. Deuteronomy 8, uh, Moses reminds them that in the wilderness, remember, I humbled you and I let you go hungry and I starved you so that you would understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When you neglect the word in your personal life, in your devotional life, when you neglect the word in the corporate life, when you stop showing up for the public proclamation of the word, you can expect your spiritual life to cool down. For there to be a sense of backsliding. For there to be a sense of misplaced priorities. We see in this Ephesian awakening the prominence of the Word of God. Number two, we also see not just the Word of God featured, but God displaying His power. Look at verse 11 through 12. Acts 19.11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now this is incredible, right? Can you imagine something that you've touched that God uses it in power to bring healing to someone else? We see plenty of people who take this as prescriptive and they abuse this. I was contacted uh, not long ago by a ministry out of Tulsa, Oklahoma that for a low price of $149, they would send me a magic prayer cloth that had been prayed over and that it would unleash blessings upon blessings in my life. And all I had to do was pay for it. And, And listen, folks, there's a market. People will buy that. It's based on texts like this and it's based on abuses These are extraordinary things that not even Paul 
engaged in often. Did you know in the ministry of Paul, we don't see this level of miracles in any of the other cities that he visits. There are only about eight to ten recorded miracles of Paul. Uh, In his first missionary journey, he um, had a run-in with the sorcerer Bar-Jesus, or Elemis, the sorcerer, and Paul uh, made him mute. And uh, he was blind for a season, not mute, blind. In 46 AD at Iconium, they were able to work wonders and miracles in Acts 14.3. And uh, there was a man that, who was crippled from his feet, in his feet, from his mother's womb. And, and when, he, when Paul saw that he had faith, he, he helped him up. In Philippi, we read about a few weeks ago, Paul um, delivered a little girl from a demon. And the prison doors were opened in that miraculous event. Uh, in Second um, Corinthians, Paul goes back and, and, and he reminds them that the signs of an apostle were demonstrated by me in all patience and signs and wonders and miracles among you. That was in Corinth. Uh, during Paul's third missionary journey here in Ephesus, there are these miracles. But in all of the miracles of Paul, the shipwreck and the viper snatching to his hand and healing the official of dysentery, all of those pale in comparison to what took place here in Ephesus. What's the purpose of miracles? Why did Jesus do miracles? Why did Paul, why did the apostles, why were they authorized to do miracles? Miracles in the Bible prove the greatness and the power of God. Psalm 77, 14 says, You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. A miracle is an unusual manifestation of God's power in which He intervenes in human affairs. Miracles display God's power and they inspire wonder and they act as signs that affirm God's message to the world. You often see or hear about miracles in places where God's Word has not taken root, where it has not been proclaimed, where it has not been taught. And when God is establishing His Word in a country or in a state or in a town or a region around the world, oftentimes miracles accompany that to to authenticate the message of the gospel. A miracle is a supernatural event that confirms a divine message. And as a result, those who were in Ephesus heard the gospel and saw the accompanying work of God in the midst of it. Now, I want to give you a warning because I want you to understand that this is descriptive of what took place in Ephesus and not prescriptive. You and I have both seen a number of believers who chase after miracles, who, who only want the gifts that God brings without the giver of the gifts. There's a real danger for those who are constantly running that need to see more and more supernatural things. God often uh, will act in a way that promotes faith, not approving of His deity or His miracles. If you've, if you've ever said, if God is real, you have to prove it to me by doing this or that. And, and yet Jesus came doing miracles and they still denied Him. Their hearts were still hardened and they still didn't believe Him in spite of all the miracles. Do not be a people that runs after or chases after the supernatural, miraculous, those sorts of things. When we do that, we exchange the person of Jesus for what He can do for us when we focus on miracles. There wasn't an interest or a fascination. Uh, as a matter of fact, Luke, when he mentions it, it just 
It's kind of in passing. Extraordinary things were done through Paul, handkerchiefs and aprons, and then he moves on to other verses. He gives far more prominence to the Word of God than he does to these miracle events. Nonetheless, these signs and wonders were given to authenticate the message that Paul was proclaiming. The third thing, uh, not only was the Word of God prominent, not only was God showing His power through signs and wonders that, that authenticated His Word and the message of the Gospel, but people magnified Jesus. And you get it in this sort of funny story of these Jewish exorcists. They weren't believers, right? But they had seen what God was doing through Paul, and so they thought, well, let's just kind of hijack some of what Paul does and let's do it ourselves. And so they undertook, it says in verse 13, to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And they said, you know, by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, and, and they were doing this. And the evil spirit answers back in kind of a funny way. Um, I know Jesus, and I've heard of Paul, but I have no idea who you are. And he overpowers them and beats them. This one man filled with this demon overpowers them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Uh, Matt Chandler remarks on this passage. He says, how do you know when you've lost a fight? If when the fight started, you were wearing pants, and then when it was over, you were no longer wearing pants, it's clear that you lost. These men were beat down by one guy with a demon because they did not have the Spirit of Jesus residing within them. They simply saw Jesus' name as some sort of magical incantation. Have you ever met people like that, that pray and proclaim things in the name of Jesus this, and in the name of Jesus that, and I command this in the name of Jesus? If we're not careful, we can take the Lord Jesus' name in vain and see His name as some sort of a formula for power and authority and rebuking. Well, I think we see this abused a lot, not just in our culture, but especially in things like the health and wealth gospel and the prosperity gospel. Jesus' name is not revered as much as it is tried to be bent and used in all these terrible ways. And you can see how it went for these guys. Uh, they were beaten down by one guy with a demon and it left something else. It says that great fear fell among them all. I think that that would produce fear in us. I think if we saw what the church saw in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, another place where great fear fear fell upon the congregation, they lied to the Holy Spirit, they withheld some of the offering that God had told them to give, and, and so instead of giving it all, they pretended like they gave it all and they withheld some of it. And, and as a result, you remember what happened. Uh, Peter, when Sapphira walks in, the Holy Spirit reveals to Peter that they withheld some, and even though they're pretending to give it all, like everybody else, they didn't, and so they withheld some, and so Sapphira fell down dead, uh, Ananias first, and then later Sapphira came in, and, and she did the same thing, and, and she also fell down dead. And Acts 5.11 says that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. There is a sense in which the power of God on display for one group of people can't be borrowed and used for selfish purposes by another group of people. And when that happens, God produces a fear that is real, a dread. Have you ever felt a sense of dread? Have you ever walked into a situation where something just didn't feel right and it was more than just 
an unnatural, it was an unnatural fear of dread. I grew up in Oklahoma in tornado weather, and every once in a while you could feel the skies go dark, and the hot breeze would change into a cool breeze, and there would just be something different about the air that produced a sense of something big is about to happen, something's coming. In eighth grade, I was not a saved kid. I didn't grow up in church. And I remember coming out of school one day, and there was a group of people, as all the kids were leaving school in eighth grade, all these kids were leaving, there were a a number of high school kids outside handing out tracts and witnessing to people and talking about Jesus returning and the need to confess and repent. And and what happened was it produced so much uh, interest that there were groups of 10 or 20 students around a a high school student who was reading Scripture. And and it happened spontaneously in such a way that it was just unusual. Buses were late to load, and parents were waiting in the car pickup line, and these groups of maybe two or 300 students separated, all gathered in this large area, just hearing about the tracks and the gospel. And I remember passing by one, and listening for a minute or two before I finally said, I don't want anything to do with that, but, but I'll never forget the feeling of dread, of conviction in my heart that what they were saying had truth to it that needed to be listened to. That sense of dread and fear fell upon all those who were in Ephesus when they experienced this move of God and these Jewish exorcists uh, had this... Um, had this encounter with this demon-possessed man. I think the warning for you there is to be careful not to see Jesus and to use his name as some sort of a magical incantation. The believers, number four, they confessed and they renounced their sins. Look at verses 18 through 19. Also, many of those who were now believers came and they confessed and they divulged their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of everyone. And when they counted the value, they, came, they found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This was one of the signs of revival, and that is confession and repentance. When people are so moved that they have to confess their sin, they, their sin is revealed and they feel such a weight, a burden about their sinfulness, their consciences are, are torn and they're much more aware of their sinfulness. And because of that sensitivity to sin, in times of awakening and in times right here in, in, in Acts 19, they came confessing and divulging and repenting. In 1994, there was a, a revival that began in Texas among students. And it began at a, a service uh, a Sunday night service back in the 90s when they still did Sunday night services. And, and these students came and they began confessing their sin and it lasted for two or three days. At the same time, at a small Baptist school in Arkansas where I was attending, I felt prompted by the Lord. I've told this story before, but for the previous six or so, eight weeks, I'd kind of gone on a personal syncation. I don't know if you know what that means, but I just had gotten hardened toward the Lord, and I'd gotten kind of tired and a little bit lazy spiritually, and it backslidden to a degree where I was doing things I shouldn't be doing. Just totally backslidden, not in the Word, not in prayer, not just with a hardened heart. 
engaging in sinful behavior. And it was on that week that this revival was taking place, I think at Howard Payne University, that on that Tuesday, without any understanding that that was taking place, I, f- I felt the need to get right with the Lord. And this sense pervaded me for a day or so. And on Wednesday, I sat down and I had one of those epic quiet times, like two or three hours of just confession and brokenness and confession and brokenness and reading the Word and praying. And it was just one of those times of getting right with the Lord. And I'll never forget at the end of that time, um, I felt really prompted by the Lord. Hey, write down all the sins that you've been engaging in. (laughs) Just write it down in a list and put it in your jacket pocket and, uh, and take it to the, the campus worship service tomorrow night. And I was like, oh, okay. I don't know if I really should do that. And I was a little nervous uh, uh, because the, the idea was that if I wrote these down, the Lord might want me to confess this. And I'm a Bible major and I'm on this campus. And, you know, it would be kind of embarrassing if I had to sit. And... But I did it. And I thought there's not a chance that they're going to ask people to come up and confess sin. So I wrote all these things down and and uh, and I tucked it into my Levi's denim, you know, jean jacket like everybody wore back then. And, and I got to the service that night and Zach, my friend, sang the first song. And then at the end of that, he, he stepped up to the microphone and he said, I don't know if any of you have heard, but all over Texas and all these places and all these campuses, students are coming together to spontaneously confess and repent of their sins. And we want to know if anybody here has been prepared to come up and confess sin. And in a room with four or five hundred of my peers, I just knew that that was what the Lord wanted me to do. And so I walked up to the front and I I put my head down and I took out my paper and I I began to read through all these sins that I had committed over the previous six or seven weeks. It was embarrassing and, and yet at the same time, this confession time, you begin to experience something different begin to experience healing and restoration and the Lord renewing you and being purified. And, and when I looked up from that paper, I didn't see anybody in the middle aisles. And I looked wider and everybody had filed to the ends of the room. And for the next eight hours in that room, students came confessing sin. It's one of the realities of an awakening or a revival or a true move of God in someone's life. It doesn't have to be at a large awakening, but... It could be something happening right now in your own heart. Even now, just for one person, God might be laying a heavy burden of sin on you. And and yet, you've not confessed it and you've held on to it. I'll speak more about this in a minute, but for now, let's move on. The fifth thing I want you to see here in this passage from Ephesus is that the gospel had a drastic impact on all of society. Paul made plans to move on. The revival awakening period was winding down. And so Paul is making plans to go about uh, somewhere else in the future. And in verse 23, there arose a disturbance concerning the way. And it came in the form of opposition. Demetrius and these craftsmen came together and they started a riot. See, the revival had had such an impact on those who benefited from idle crafting that they no longer had business. That's how you know when a revival is real, when it starts to impact. Uh, I think it was in the Second Great Awakening or in the 1904 Welsh Revival. In that time, bars closed because they didn't have any people coming to drink. And in many towns and places where that took place, the bars would hire people to go out and start a riot or to start a fight or to do something against those who were bringing revival because 
their, their money was being threatened. Demetrius and the craftsmen here, they're not concerned about people. They're not concerned that people are worshiping idols or being delivered from their diseases or being delivered from demons. They're not concerned with the truths of the gospel that had gripped the entire area of Asia. They paid no attention to the miracles, the signs, the wonders, the teaching, the preaching, the healing. They were only concerned because they were losing money. And because of that, they were enraged and they start this riot. And I think the cool thing here is that Paul wanted to go into the theater. Isn't that like Paul? Hey, there's 20,000 people rioting against me. Let me just go get a, get a crack at the microphone for a minute. He wanted to go in there and be able to preach the gospel to a crowd of people. The assembly was in chaos and confusion. Paul was warned not to go in. And after a while, the town clerk quieted things down. He gets control and he defends those who are being accused. And this brings to the end of Paul's three-year Ephesian ministry. And you can see that it is absolutely a great awakening. What should you and I do in response to this? How should we respond and apply the Word of God to our life today? I said I'd come back and I will there to verses 18 through 19. I want you to see that there was complete transformation in it demonstrated itself in the form of repentance. You have the account of these selling their magic art books and divulging their practices and confessing. The burning of the scrolls in Ephesus marked real transformation. Listen to this note from one of my study Bibles. It says, The Greco-Roman world put great stock into magical incantations and spells. They would often collect them into books that sold for large sums of money. The converts in Ephesus brought these relics of their pagan past and they held a massive book burning. Pieces of silver refers to the Greek drachma, which represented a laborer's average daily wage. All right, so you got that? One piece of silver is the average person's daily wage, not the low person on the totem pole's daily wage, not the high Just the average person made about a silver drachma a day. At $15 an hour for our culture, or $120 a day, 50,000 drachmas would equal approximately $6 million in today's currency. You see the money that they burned. They burned about $6 million worth of magic books as a demonstration of their real transformation. And it was the whole community in and around Ephesus. Demetrius accused them, the entire area of Asia. By the way, this isn't what we know of as Asia, okay? This is not all of like China and Southeast. The Roman province of Asia was basically Turkey. Basically Turkey. But still, that's an enormous area to have heard the word of God and for these people to repent in the form of $6 million. And it brings me to this idea that one of the most beautiful aspects... When a person responds in faith and repentance to the gospel message is a changed heart that's reflected in changed affections. You know what I mean? You remember watching a movie in your younger years and you remember how great that movie was and then you're redeemed and you're saved and your heart changes and you walk with the Lord for a period of time and then you go back and you think, oh, I love that movie and I'll watch it. And and immediately it's distasteful and the jokes and the the taking the Lord's name in vain or the profanity or the things that you once enjoyed, now you have no taste for. Jesus changes a person deep down inside 
starts with their affections. Let me give you a couple of examples. Before Jesus, I didn't sing out loud, all right? I mean, in vocal music in like seventh grade where we had to, but it was in a choir and Patty Drennan would teach us and we would, we would go out and we would sing and, and we would do these things. And I would just kind of like some people in our church would just lip sync because I don't want to sing out loud. I didn't like to sing out loud. But once I became saved, there was something within me that wanted to sing. I didn't care how bad my voice was or is. There's something deep inside of me welled up in a song of worship to the Lord. I had a new affection. Another example. Before I believed in Jesus, I had no real awareness of and I experienced no real joy in life's simple and beautiful moments, like a sunset or a sunrise or or a beautiful landscape, or just a, a nice weather day, or there was nothing within me that, that thought, oh, thank you, Lord, taking real joy in those moments. And I remember being filled with anxiety and worry and always consumed with my problems and issues and anger issues, and everything was just under the surface, about to blow over, so that I had no joy and no peace in my life whatsoever. But after I was saved, something changed. This was one of the very first things that took place, was a deep change in, deep down in my heart where, where I began to take joy. Somebody gave me a book called My First 30 Devotions. And I was a new believer, maybe two or three months into my walk with Christ. And, and I had noticed that something was changing in my heart. My desires were different. My, my affections were different. But there was one particular day when I parked uh, and down the street was a playground, and I, I remember seeing all these little kids playing on this playground, and not in a creepy way, but just seeing them down there, and, and I'm reading this book, and I'm looking up, and, and I, I'm, as a 17-year-old kid, I'm noticing these kids, and, and I'm just smiling at the joy of innocent children playing. Something I had, would have never engaged in before. And then I remember finishing this devotional and, and reading it. And it said in that book that you might even experience change affections to the degree that you might see a sunset or being at peace in a chaotic moment. Or you might see children at play and these things bring unspeakable joy. This is a deep heart change that affects you in such a way that your loves are now different. Before I believed in, one more example, before I believed in Jesus, I had an unhealthy obsession with horror books and movies and, you know, gross stuff. Um, I was fascinated with them. Books of violence and demonic possession and paranormal. I, I could read any of them, and I read a lot of them. I would go to places that were often used by satanic groups in our community. I was consumed with these things that in hindsight had very dark themes. But after being saved, I I no longer had any taste for that kind of entertainment. As a matter of fact, a lot of the entertainment that the world finds entertaining, I I often find distasteful and and I don't have an appetite for it any longer. And it's not just a subtraction of affections, it's a replaced affection. Do you understand? It's not like something was removed from me and just left open. There was a filling of a, a new and better desire There was a filling, a captivating with God's Word, a hunger for godly books and for godly bands and for godly songs and for being around the people of God. God filled this void in my life with something, like Philippians says, to think on these things that are pure and lovely and worthy of praise and excellent. This change I'm talking about is described in Ezekiel 36. 
Janine read Ezekiel 37, but in 36 it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from the idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't that beautiful? God plants within you if you're a regenerate born-again believer, not just new affections, but everything begins to change and He begins to pr- promote within you a desire to do good and godly things. I saw a post this week on Instagram on the, the baptism practice of individuals who are a part of the Knights Templar. He said there was this strange practice that when the church would baptize one of these knights, they would take their sword into the baptistry with them. Um, and as they were being immersed, they would go down, but they would lift their sword up out of the water. It was their way of saying to Jesus, you can have control of me, but you can't have this. Jesus, I'm all yours, but who I am and what I do on the battlefield, how I use this sword, that's not part of the deal. Simpkins wrote, most of us don't walk around carrying swords, but if that was still the practice today, When we baptize people, my guess is that a lot of us would still be holding something up out of the water. A wallet, a phone, a dream, a platform, a relationship. And he asked this, what is it that you're clinging to? What are you holding out of the baptismal waters? The truth is, a lot of us are very comfortable calling Jesus Savior, but not necessarily Lord. We might say, you can have my life, just not this one thing. But whatever our hearts cling to and confide in, that's where our loyalty is. He says, I think a lot of us sincerely desire to receive something from God, but it's almost always difficult to receive with the things that are causing our fists to clench around them. The Ephesian converts burned $6 million of their former idolatrous life. What are you holding on to? What are you holding back? What is it that prevents you from engaging in repentance and confession? Is there something in your heart that you're not willing to let go? We see in this passage that revival broke out as people were willing to confess and renounce their sin. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we thank you for the opportunity that we've heard had to hear it. Your word tells us that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, that the old is passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And that includes our affections, the desires of our heart. Father, forgive us if we have backslidden in such a way that our affections have shifted away from you and your word and away from Jesus and the cross, away from the message of the gospel and onto worldly things. Would you grant us the gift of repentance that times of refreshing may come, that you may use this congregation as a demonstration of your power, of holiness and of purity, and of a people who are walking in fear of you and reverence of you and awe of you as you come among us. We pray that it would begin with each of us, that in our hearts we would set apart Christ as Lord, not holding anything back, And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.